Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, there are certain moments in life where you may come to what's called uh, the point of no return. You know a certain event is coming up. Uh, Maybe you anxiously wait for its arrival, thinking perhaps, well, maybe I'll back out before the time comes. But then at a certain moment, you you make a step forward that commits you to going through with what you had planned, the event or activity that you had in mind. As a bit of a, perhaps an extreme example of this sort of thing, think of an activity like uh, skydiving. I've never gone skydiving before, so I can only imagine what it's like. One thing I'm sure of, though, is it's, I'd probably feel sick to my stomach the higher the plane came into the sky, the closer I got to jumping out of the airplane. I'd probably think to myself, am I really going to go through with this? Maybe it's better if we just call the whole thing off. But once someone jumps out of the airplane, of course, there's no going back. Well, the Lord Jesus hits a sort of point of no return in our text. God the Father sent his Son into the world to suffer and die for the sins of his people. That was his life's mission. And every hour of every day brought Jesus one, close, one hour closer to enduring the full wrath of God. The Bible makes clear that Jesus was a true man. And so he experienced the same emotions that we experience. Think of the anxiety you would feel about having to die the awful death that Jesus would die being completely forsaken by the Father, suffering God's full and eternal wrath against sin. Well, the scriptures make clear that the Lord Jesus struggled at this moment in the Garden of Gethsemane. He even prayed that this cup might be taken away from him if possible. And so, in this crucial moment in the Garden, band of men come to arrest Jesus. And delivering himself into their hands means entering a free fall to the climax of his suffering. And what, yet, what does our Lord do in this moment? Well, Jesus gives himself up freely and willingly. Christ gives himself up going past the point of no return for our sake and for our salvation. That's what we're going to focus on this morning. So that brings us to the sermon theme. Christ delivers himself into the hands of his enemies, and he does this, first of all, despite his superior power. He does it in obedience to his Father, and finally, he does it out of love for his people. As we look at this passage from John 18, it's good to ask ourselves, uh, who is in control here in this moment, in this event. Well, from a human point of view, Judas and his band of men appear to be in control. They are by far the superior force. At least that's what it looks like to human eyes. Verse 3 says, Judas procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and, and they came to the garden with lanterns and torches and even weapons. Now, the officers of the chief priests formed part 
of the temple guard, kind of a a temple area police to keep order. And back in John 7, chief priests sent them to arrest Jesus, but these officers came back unsuccessful. This time, the Pharisees and the chief priests were going to take no chances. And so they equipped these officers with a group of Roman soldiers. The Greek text tells us the band of soldiers was a Roman cohort. And while we don't know the exact number of soldiers present here, it's clear that this was a formidable force of men. Moreover, they came out equipped with torches and and weapons. And so, for the chief priests and the Pharisees, failure was not an option here. They were not going to make a mistake. They were going to get their man. That was what they were thinking. And the further benefit the Jewish leaders had at this moment was that they had enlisted, they'd gained the help of Judas Iscariot. For some time now, they'd wanted to arrest the Lord Jesus, but they did not because they were afraid of the crowds. However, Judas could help them here, could lead them to this secluded spot under the cover of darkness, away from the crowds where they could arrest Jesus in this solitary place. And so it all looked like a foolproof plan. They seemingly had now gained the upper hand and had the Lord Jesus exactly where they wanted him. Now, that's the way things look uh, like from a human point of view. But a closer look here shows something more going on. The reality is that Christ is the one in control and has been all along. See, our text, it gives a contrast between the knowledge of Judas and the knowledge of Jesus. Verse 2 tells us something that Judas knew. There it says, Now Judas, the one who betrayed him, knew the place too. That is the place of the garden where Jesus and his disciples went. Because Jesus had met there many times with his disciples. So this statement seems to give Judas the advantage. He has inside information. But now listen to verse 4. Jesus knew all that was going to happen to him. Sorry, excuse me. He knew Judas, Judas went out to betray him. He knew this band of soldiers was coming. He knew he was going to be arrested. This is something John's gospel has been emphasizing uh, the entire way through. In John 6, verse 64, we hear these words, Jesus knew from the beginning who it was who would betray him. And again in John 13, the Lord Jesus says to his disciples, You are clean, but not every one of you. And then it adds, For Jesus knew who was to betray him. And so Jesus knew all things. He was not the helpless victim here of some well-thought-out plan that finally trapped him, caught him off guard. 
Instead, he was actually working to bring this very event about. And so, ironically, both Judas's intentions in this passage and Jesus' intentions in this passage are one and the same, although Judas doesn't know it. Judas came to the garden to have Jesus arrested. And Jesus also came to this garden to have himself arrested. Of course, it must be stated that their motivations for this act were entirely at odds. Judas acted out of hatred. The Lord Jesus, as we will see later on, is acting in love, love for God and love for his people. And Judas didn't know that Christ was working for this very thing. So Jesus freely delivers himself into their hands despite his superior knowledge, and even because of his superior knowledge. This is further emphasized by what happens at the moment of their meeting. Listen to verses 4 to 6. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. And then it says, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. It really is quite amazing. Here we have the carpenter from Nazareth uh, versus the cohort of Roman soldiers. Now, who's going to win this battle? Well, this crowd of strong soldiers are brought to their knees by a simple statement from Christ. Now, reading this, we might wonder, why did this happen? Why did these men fall to the ground at Jesus' response? Was it a miraculous work of Christ? Did he just bring them to their knees by his power? Or was it a more natural reaction to Jesus' reply? Uh, Were they somewhat scared that Jesus was so forthright and also having heard of some of his previous miracles, maybe they were scared? Seems to me that this is more of a miraculous working of Christ by his power to bring them to their knees, to show them something of who he is. And furthermore, another thing is hinted at in this exchange. Jesus asked the men whom they were seeking. When they responded, Jesus of Nazareth, Christ replied by saying, I am he. But in Greek, he uses the term, I am. Which is very probably a reference to the divine name of God. Christ had already used similar language in John 8 to to imply that he was Yahweh. He told the Jews in that chapter, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And they understood fully what the Lord Jesus was saying. Because they then picked up stones to throw at him, knowing Jesus was claiming to be God in that moment. Here, Christ uses the exact same language when he says, I am he, or I am. Now, in any case, the Spirit through John is strongly implying the deity of Christ in this event. 
Jesus Christ speaks the divine name, and these men fall to the ground before him in response. And at the very least, it's a foreshadowing of things to come. This is what will happen when Christ returns again on the clouds of heaven. Every knee will bow before him. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And by bringing them to their knees here, Christ is making plain. He's far more powerful than they are, despite their soldiers, despite their training, despite all their weapons. If they arrest him here, it's only because he allows them to take him. You know, Judas is repeatedly called the betrayer in this text, and throughout the Gospels. Literally, he's called the one who delivers Jesus up. But at the end of the day, it's the Lord Jesus who delivers himself into the hands of his enemies. And at the end of the day, it's God the Father working to deliver up his own son to death for our sake. So what it says in Romans 4, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses, the same language used to describe Judas handing over Jesus. And again in Romans 8, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. It was the working of God. And so it's the mystery of God's providence at work. On one level, humans are at work. Take, for example, Judas to carry out their plans and wicked plans at that. But over top of them and also through them, God himself is at work to carry out his own plans of salvation. The Apostle Peter would later describe this in his sermon in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, where he says, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, and you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. On one level, humans working to kill the Lord Jesus. On another level, uh, God Almighty working to bring this event about, even through the actions of wicked men. God without sin remains in control for good, even when humans in their uh, sin work for evil. And that's a comfort for us as well. God still does the same thing today. He is working all things for the salvation of his people, even when humans act wickedly on this earth. God will bring all things to completion for the good of his people. That brings us to our second point. Now, as the soldiers fell to the ground in response to Jesus' statement, I am he, Christ asked them again, Whom do you seek? He said again, Jesus of Nazareth. He wants to put the focus on himself. Then Christ res- responded by saying, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. And with these words, uh, Jesus makes clear that he's giving himself up to this group of soldiers and these officers. 
He's, he's not going to resist arrest, even though he just showed that he could. Well, one of his disciples has other plans. In a display of quite astonishing bravery, Simon Peter drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest. And clearly, he was going for the kill as he cut off his right ear. But brave though it may be, Peter's actions reveal a misunderstanding about the kingdom of God. He doesn't understand that God's kingdom does not advance in this world through these means. Through the means of forceful or violent actions. Because God's kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. Peter also doesn't understand the mission of the Lord Jesus. Jesus came to do the will of his Father. This is something he's been emphasizing again and again, also in John's gospel. In John 4, he told his disciples, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. In John 5, he said, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And again in John 6, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And part, a large part of that will of the Father is, as Christ states it to Peter here in our text, put your sword in its sheath. I haven't come here to start a physical war. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now, what is this cup that the Father wanted his son to drink? Well, it's certainly not any refreshing drink like water or juice or wine. But of course, it's a metaphor. This cup is the bitter cup of suffering that Jesus must drink, suffering the wrath of God against sin. This is the cup he must drink in obedience to his Father. And references to this sort of cup are sprinkled throughout Scripture. It's a cup filled with the wrath of God against human sin. Just one example is found in a psalm we hope to sing after this sermon, Psalm 75. There it says in verse 8 of Psalm 75, In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. That is the cup of God's wrath that will be poured out upon the earth. Here the Lord Jesus says, I have come to drink that cup in obedience to my Father. He came to obey his Father to the full, even though it meant suffering that punishment. And when we read that, we should stand in awe of our Lord Jesus. This is astonishing, amazing obedience from the Lord. You know, God's wrath against sin is just, but it is also severe. 
and bearing the wrath of God against the sins of God's, all of God's elect, that is a huge cup of wrath that the Lord Jesus is going to drink. Think of the immensity of the just anger of God against not only all our sins, but also all of God's people throughout history. Now, this is the amazing obedience of our Lord. It's the height of His act of obedience for us. You know, while John's gospel does not include Christ's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is where they are at this moment, Remember what the other Gospels tell us about uh, this event. Right before this band of soldiers came to arrest him, Jesus prayed multiple times in anguish, praying to the Father, Father, if you are willing, take, take this cup from me. Take it away if there be a, a way to do that. But then he prayed also, yet not my will, but yours be done. And we asked that somehow, in some way, he wouldn't have to drink this cup of the, the just wrath of God against our sins. And it's no wonder, given the terror he was about to go through. But it was his Father's will that he would do it. And that's what Jesus ultimately came to do, his Father's will. And that's why he said to Peter, Put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? shows that he had submitted to his father's will. He had just prayed, Lord, take this cup away from me, but if it be your will that I should drink it, I will. And so he's accepted that. And our Lord Jesus did this for us, for you and for me. He drank that cup of God's wrath in full. And what is the result? Well, the result is we get to drink from the cup of God's blessing. Well, that's something we celebrate every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. The cup of God's wrath has been replaced with a cup of God's blessing. That's what I say every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the cup of blessing for which we give thanks. Right? Christ drank the cup of God's wrath so that we might drink the cup of God's blessing. That brings us to our last point. The Lord Jesus delivered himself into the hands of his enemies, not only despite his superior power, not only to obey his Father in full, but he also did it out of love for his people. The first way we see this is in how the Lord Jesus protects his own disciples in this moment. The large band of soldiers and officers came towards Jesus and the disciples, and Christ steps forward, putting the attention on himself. That's why he asked them two times, whom do you seek? And when they say Jesus of Nazareth, he clearly says, I'm the person you're looking for. And if it's Jesus they want, then look no further than him. These other men, they can go. He says, I told you I'm he, so if you seek me, let these men go. And here in this moment, we see the good shepherd taking care of his sheep. He protects them. He lays down his life for the sheep. And he does it to fulfill his own words in John 17. There we pray to the Father, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. 
And he's determined to do that right to the very end. Here he is acting as a good shepherd, protecting his sheep. So this is our good shepherd at work. He's guarding his own, even when his own life is in danger. And that shows also how much the Lord cares for his people, how much he cares for us. He's still the same Savior. That's how much he cares for you who believe in him. It's our life before his. And he takes care that no one will be able to snatch us out of his hand. And Jesus' love is further displayed in the last words of our text. The band of soldiers and the officers of the Jews took Christ first uh, to Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was priest at that time. Now, we read about Caiaphas back in John 11. The Pharisees gathered together the council to discuss, what are we going to do with this Jesus person? They were worried that everyone was going to follow him and believe in him. And they said, if, if that happens, the Romans are going to come and take away our place and our nation. But at that moment, Caiaphas spoke up. And little did he know that he was prophesying by God's power. He said, You don't understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, of course, Caiaphas meant, uh, he was talking about his own plans. He meant that they should kill Jesus. That's how they should deal with the, the Jesus problem they had, they felt. That way, the entire nation would be preserved from perishing by the hands of the Romans. That was their plan. So from that day on, they made plans to arrest Jesus and kill him. But of course, God was working for another purpose. Here in our text, these men finally can put their plan into action. The effect of Jesus' death, however, would be far different from what Caiaphas imagined. Caiaphas thought that they would kill Jesus and save the people from the Romans. The irony here is that by these words, Caiaphas prophesied about Christ's greater mission to save God's people. Yes, Jesus would die in the place of his people, but not to save them from the Romans. He would die in the place of his people to save them from their sins. And that's because Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's as 2 Corinthians 5 puts it, we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Jesus' death counts as our death and our payment for sin. This is something we call substitutionary atonement something we looked at in my Belgian confession class over the last number of weeks. I know it's a long-sounding a term, substitutionary atonement. What does it mean? Well, it doesn't need to be that hard. You can hear the word substitute. One person stands in the place of another. You also hear that word atonement. Sacrifice that pays for sins. That's what it means here 
Caiaphas' words. Christ stood in our place. He was substituted for us. The just judgment of God that was supposed to come down on us came down on Christ instead. He paid the price in full. See, we should realize what should have happened to us. We should have been standing in Jesus' shoes. We should have been nailed to that cross to pay for our own sins. We should have drank that cup of suffering down to its very dregs. We should have paid this penalty. Christ has died in the place of his people so that we would not have to suffer eternal death. Christ died in the place of us so that we would not perish but have eternal life. Amen.